typically, if you look at a human brain, the human beings tend to specialize either in the right brain or the left brain. Right being addressing to more of the creative, unstructured, innovative kind of thinking, judgment-based. And the other side is data and technology, the numbers, the quantitative stuff. Welcome back to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Each episode shares the experience and learnings of a world-class leader on their journey to success. The guests on this podcast are bold, brilliant, and not afraid to change. As you navigate your own path, we hope you feel inspired by their stories, lessons learned, and the vision of the future. Today, we're joined by one of the brightest minds in marketing, Raja Raja Munar. He is the CMO of MasterCard, as well as the president of the healthcare business. For more than 30 years, Raja has influenced large enterprises across the globe with brands like Unilever, Citibank, and now MasterCard. You can read all about his fresh perspective on the future of marketing in his Wall Street Journal bestseller, Quantum Marketing. We talk about how Raja went from a degree in chemical engineering to being named one of the world's most influential CMOs, how it takes a team of Leonardo da Vinci's to build a marketing machine, and so much more. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for being here, Raja. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. I appreciate it. You are a world-class marketeer and a very influential leader. In one phrase, how would you sum up the power of marketing? One phrase is very, very difficult, and I'm just trying to rack my brains to say one. When you look at marketing today, as technology keeps getting more and more embedded into businesses and a lot of automation is happening, the true differentiation for a company happens through marketing, not through products. Products are replicable. It's not through sales. Sales can be either automated or replicated. I think the biggest, single biggest competitive advantage for any company will be marketing. And so that will be a long version, but in short, I would say it's priceless. Our CMO is going to hear this and say, it's priceless, Chet. There's no, it's priceless. <laughs> Why are you concerned about budgets? It's priceless. <laughs> so this is great. So your journey started in India, chemical engineer, then you got an MBA. And recently you've been named by Forbes as one of the world's most influential CMOs. How does an engineer become an awesome marketeer? See, actually, it was a fascinating journey that I have had, right? So when I did my chemical engineering, I specialized in environmental engineering. So it's all about pollution control, treatment of affluents, effluents, and so on. I was a very dedicated person, and I said, this is where I will go and make a difference to the world. So when I got into MBA, I pursued further my studies also in environmental management. This was more on the policies of pollution control, how you actually formulate policies that will regulate the companies to put away all the wastage into the rivers or into the atmosphere. So as part of our two-year MBA program between those two years, I had to do an internship, a summer internship, and I did it with a company called LACME in India. So it was a color cosmetics company owned by the Tatas in those days, and I was given a project on logistics. So I was sitting and then trying to do that whole stuff. And I had a small desk where I was sitting and working. And the cubicle next to me was my boss who was having conversations with the advertising agency. And in those days in India, particularly in South India, it was perceived, particularly in the tier two, tier three cities, that if you use color cosmetics as a woman, you are trying to attract attention to yourself. 
which means you are probably not conservative enough or you are not of a good character. Now, those were the kind of extreme interpretations, and that was the social reality then. And here I had my sisters, for example, they used to love wearing those, and they were hesitant where they would wear to so that they would not attract any negative commentary from anyone, etc. So when this conversation between the agency and my supervisor was happening in the cubicle next to me, I said, actually, you know, there could be a simple solution. I don't know why these guys are bending themselves out of shape. And I just took a piece of paper and I wrote the headline. I said, is it bad to look good? I was thinking that I was creating an advertisement. So I just put a uh, woman's picture there and then I had a little bit of commentary and then I walked into that guy's room, uh, the cubicle. And I said, hey, what do you think about this? And sorry for overhearing your conversation. So they looked at it, they were immediately pretty impressed and it so happened that Mrs. Simone Tata, who was the chairman of the company, she was walking by and she looked at it and she said, this is terrific. And then it went on, they actually made it into a campaign. It went on, won some awards and stuff like that. So very early on, even before I had exposure to marketing, when that kind of recognition or success had come my way, I got immediately stayed away from my environmental management at that time into marketing management. So I started in my second year specializing in marketing. And because I thought that's where my innate skills were. And 36 years, fast forward, I'm still in marketing. So I think I made the right choice. And if I have to turn the clock back, I would again choose marketing all over. That is super interesting. I would have thought you would have had a different perspective on the question I asked. Because if you really look at a great marketeer, it's obviously the creative slogan that's the tip of the arrow. But a lot of people can come up with really creative slogans and ads. It is the execution machine underneath it, right? The brand and the flash part of marketing is only five, six, seven percent of your total gig. The engineering degree probably and your training in engineering probably helps you run a very tight marketing ship because once you get all those things coming in, what do you do with them? Because they have to help your business, not make you feel good. That's what I thought you might have said, but I love your story far better. (laughs) In fact, the engineering background certainly helped me think in a structured, logical fashion. But I guess my innate nature is to be a little unstructured. So my first stint was with a company called Asian Paints. In those days, they didn't have a marketing department. And they decided to form a marketing department, and they selected me as a founder flunky for the marketing department of three people. So I went into the department and just because my scores were very good in MBA, I got selected for that role. And having read Philip Kotler and Max Trout on all the uh, assignments and exams in marketing, I thought I was a marketing whiz kid. Now, but when I came into real life and my very first interaction with one of my board members at that time, I still remember him, Mr. Chari. So he asked me, saying that, Raja, I heard that you have joined us as a marketing guy. But tell me, we are already a market leader and we don't have a marketing department till now. So what exactly are you going to come and do? Now, that that was such a kind of a shocking question. And he was right that they were a market leader and there was no marketing in the company in terms of a formal department, which really set me off on the course of trying to understand what is marketing in real life? How do different companies look at marketing? And even in those days, when I went to companies like Richardson Wicks, it was called Richardson Hindustan, with Unilever, which was called Hindustan Milk Manufacturers, which was the company which makes Horlicks, and ITC Welcome Group. All these companies, I went and started interviewing them to find out what they do in marketing. And the marketing version in each company 
what they do, what they stand for, was completely radically different from each other. So I said, okay, so there is nothing called the marketing, but there is a type of marketing that's suitable for those companies. So that's where it started, and it was very entrepreneurial in Asian brains. When I joined Unilever, I had to unlearn a lot of things and then restart a structured way of doing marketing because Unilever was like the school of marketing and they were fantastic at it. When I joined Citibank seven years later, it was all about very different way. They would say, okay, my country business manager, I was at the United Arab Emirates, so it's okay, I'm giving you $2 million. Tell me what will I get in return? What is the ROI? The focus on ROI was so sharp. So Citibank actually honed my skills in terms of connecting the dots between marketing campaigns and marketing actions and investment to business outcomes and ROI. That was phenomenal. When I came to the U.S. and I joined Citibank and I was managing their North America credit cards business, I learned the art of forecasting. So Citibank, for example, in those days, they used to have my portfolio had receivables of 70 plus billion dollars. So even if you make a 10 basis points difference in your forecast, it would sort of completely move things away in a different direction. So each stage, I started learning something different. So here I am, you know, after 36 years in my marketing career, I try to draw as much as possible from each one of these. And I feel very blessed and enriched with all those experiences that I had, which gave a different facet to me as a marketer. A lot of people may not remember this, but I really would like to mention this. City, in its formidable years, came up with some phenomenal executives, right? The pedigree that came out of City in that decade was awesome, right? In the late 80s, early 90s were just phenomenal. The number of companies they've started is through the roof. You've been quoted saying, it takes a team of Leonardo da Vinci's to build an innovative marketing machine. I love this perspective. Tell us about this some more. Yeah, so firstly, today, if you look at marketing, There are multiple facets to marketing, right? So there is the creative aspect of marketing, which requires a design sensibility and aesthetic. You need an understanding of psychology and sociology and anthropology, neurology. This is all one big aspect of marketing. Then the second aspect of marketing is about technology. Today, technology drives every aspect of marketing completely and not just for automation, but every aspect of marketing. Then you've got the third aspect, which is data, which is highly quantitative. And data is not the same as technology. It's a different set of skills. So you've got these three key pillars. Typically, if you look at a human brain, the human beings tend to specialize either in the right brain or the left brain. Right being addressing to more of the creative, unstructured, innovative kind of thinking, judgment-based. And the other side is data and technology, the numbers, the quantitative stuff. Now, when you look at these two, Today, as if you are either one of these, you are a semi-formed marketer. You are not a holistic and a wholesome marketer. And the shining example to me, and I absolutely admire Leonardo da Vinci. And when I look at it, I say, this is the right mindset more than skill set of how a marketer today has to be. Because you have to straddle across all these three pillars, which means you need to be whole-brained. And that is what I call as Leonardo da Vinci type of person who should be the marketing folks that you should hire. It's not very easy to come across these kind of people. There are people who definitely they're available and I have come across a whole bunch of these folks, but they don't want to come and join marketing. They want to go to Silicon Valley or they want to join investment bank or they want to join a consulting firm 
Unfortunately, some of the studies that have been done four years back by ANA, uh, which is the Association of National Advertisers out here in the U.S., amongst college students, marketing as a field was rated below accounting and below uh, nursing. I have nothing against nursing, but I was horrified to see marketing below accounting. You know, that's the height of degeneration. It had so many positive things about it. It was number one. And today we are below nursing and below. So that is an unfortunate reality. So the point is, how do you then have marketing functions truly rise to the occasion? So then I said, it's not probably individuals as Leonardo da Vinci types, but at least as a team, you should be a Leonardo da Vinci team, which means you get the left brain people, you get the right brain people, and you get the people who are general managers who can marry both these, but all of this happening within marketing itself. Now, just to share a simple example, like in my case, because that was reality that I was facing, I hired people who are brilliant at digital and data analytics and quantitative stuff. And I hired a CFO within marketing that gives a lot of gravitas to marketing and the numbers that we are talking about. And this CFO has real reporting into the finance function and into marketing. And we did it almost like nine years back. I created a function with a chief risk officer. My ex-CFO became my chief risk officer and residing within marketing and identifying all the risks within marketing and try to uh, sort of uh, have plans to either mitigate them or avoid them. Or if they do happen, then what do you do? How do you react, etc. So we have all the contingency plans and stuff like that. So on one side. And on the other side, we got real cool folks from innovation side, from branding side, from design. We have got a design studio in the company. So we started creating those kind of areas, and we have got a technology person residing within marketing. So we have got a person from IT who is within marketing but has dual reporting into the chief innovation officer, a chief information officer for the company. So that way, what I'm trying to do is to create an ecosystem or a whole department that functions like Leonardo da Vinci as opposed to having individuals, each one of them being a Leonardo da Vinci. And you're absolutely right, right? Because... You know, in the tech world, we would say a good engineering leader has needs three things. They have technology chops, they have people chops, and they have process chops. You bring them all together. But you never get somebody who's a 10 on all three. Yep. So what you do is you find a way to get people who at least are good at two out of the three, and then mix and match them together to get a small team that has all three of them. Exactly. Right? And that's what exactly what you're doing on the marketing side, which is just brilliant. So I find it very fascinating that you have a playlist called Priceless. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. So here are a couple of things without kind of precursor to that. So firstly, what I have seen is jingles have been around forever. Yes. And now if you play one of those jingles without playing the brand, I can tell you which brand it is from my childhood. Or if it asked me, oh, can you tell me what the jingle was of that particular brand? I can hum it even today, right? And this is an amazing lasting power that music has, that sound has. However, when we looked at this environment today, what's happening is there are a lot of devices which people are interacting with, whether they are smart speakers, internet of things, you're talking of wearables, where there is not really a real estate that you can communicate with the consumer in a meaningful way. The medium of engagement for consumers there is sound. 
So we said, therefore, we have to manifest ourselves in that medium of sound. So we said, okay, we need to create a sonic brand, therefore, a brand that is recognizable by the sound. The obvious solution, like I said, it could have been the jingles. Yes. But jingles are so unidimensional when I started diving into it. Then you've got a different dimension, which a company like Intel has done brilliantly, which is that mnemonic that they use at the end of their advertisements. And for some surprising reason, they stopped. I hope they will bring it back because it's a very, very powerful asset for them. Then you've got a third dimension, which is somebody like a British Airways, who has got a complete melody that they play as a background. It's an aria that they play in their planes, and it sort of runs. It's very beautiful and easily identifiable. So I said, these are three different aspects. What should MasterCard's strategy be? Should it be one or the other, or should it be a confluence of many? So when I started understanding the science of sound, I had the best lesson from a Bose studio, where they actually switched off the volume completely and played a horror film for me. They said, how scared are you? The answer is zero. (laughs) There was no scare at all. But then they started increasing the volume. And as it was increasing, the fear factor was increasing. Yes, yes. So then they have sort of said, you know, the volume of sound has got an impact on your emotions and the intensity of emotions. So that's when I dived headlong into the understanding the science of sound and the impact on feelings and emotions. So when I started doing it, and I worked with a lot of musicians, musicologists, neuroscientists, and sound engineers, and so on, I came up with, for the company, with my team and with our agency, a 10-layered architecture for our sonic identity. So 10 layers? 10 layers. So the first layer is basically a 30-second melody. A melody that is neutral because it has to go, it should not dominate. It should be pleasant. It should be memorable. It should be hummable. It should be versatile. It should be adaptable to different situations. And it should also, when I said versatility, it should be sounding native in China. It should be sounding native in Germany. So irrespective of the culture in the country, it should sound native. Uh, a universal uh, kind of a thing. That we started plugging into all our advertisements and all our videos and so on. The second layer is to have the mnemonic, like the Intel mnemonic, but it's a subset, notes taken from my basic core melody. And we play it at the end of every single one of our ads. The third one is because MasterCard has a unique point of interaction which many brands do not have, which is when you're buying an item, either on your phone or at a point of sale terminal in a shop, when you make your payment and the transaction goes through successfully, we said it should make a noise. That noise is the sound of MasterCard. So it is a subset of our mnemonic, which evokes the memory of the 30-second melody. So these three layers we have launched. And now, for example, we have got more than 220 million points of interaction around the world where you hear the MasterCard melody when the transaction goes through successfully, right? And then the fourth one, what we said is we will get into the pop culture. That is where our melody will be infused into songs that people would like to listen. The question is, who would want to listen to a song from a corporation? Okay, and people, if you say this is from MasterCard or this is from such and such a company, you will throw up. So we said, how do we really make it very, truly a popular song? We're not doing it just for music's sake. It has to embed MasterCard sounds in a recognizable way. So we created our first song in Latin America called Dance Free. Yeah, yeah, 
And this was done by a group called Domino Saints, which is an up-and-coming group. We launched it in Latin America, and in four markets, it topped the charts. And in 12 out of the 20 markets, it was a top 20 song. Wow. So we said, okay, so we said, this is good. Then we replicated in Turkey, in Korea, in Russia, even in India. So we went across all of the, in India, and we said, now we should have an album. That's the next step of evolution. So that album, we decided to call it Priceless because MasterCard identity. So the album is called Priceless, and we said this will be a platform where we will take incredible talent who do not have a platform today, a successful platform, but we can provide because we have close to 3 billion MasterCard cardholders around the world. So we have a distribution engine like nobody else has probably. And so we said we will leverage that, and we will have a fantastic top-notch composer and music producer so we have found a person in Sweden who works with the likes of Lady Gaga, with Miley Cyrus and Mary J. Blige. And so he created the songs. And then these songs were played by these artists. There were 10 songs. And each one of the songs has the MasterCard melody clearly recognizable. But the 10 songs are distinctly different from each other. So they don't sound like a clone of the other one. Wow. Yeah. So we launched this and already it's making some positive waves for us across multiple countries, including the UK and Latin America and et cetera. So we are very excited about this. And this is what I intend to make it as an annual platform where annually we would like to release an album and we'll have about 10 to 12 songs. And we'll have talent who are really looking to be showcased, who are incredibly talented. That's a phenomenal story. I love that. So you've written a best-selling book called Quantum Marketing. In a couple of sentences, what is quantum marketing about? So quantum marketing is about the new way of doing marketing in this imminent fifth paradigm that we are about to enter, which will be intensely driven by technology, dominated by data, and it will be impacted by tectonic cultural shifts. The current classical ways of doing marketing are already failing in a big way. And we need to reinvent and reimagine marketing. And that new way of doing marketing is what quantum marketing is all about. What is your favorite chapter of the book? Loyalty. And what's the biggest takeaway for our audience? Loyalty, we spend a trillion dollars as an industry every year. When a survey was done by BBC.com, it was published on BBC.com that I read about four years back. And they have done research amongst people who are married or in relationships. They ask them, how many of you cheat or cheated on your spouses or your partners? The number was about 70%. And a further 15% have said, if they're sure they will not get caught, they would actually like to cheat. So you're talking of an overwhelming majority of 85% of the people not being loyal to their spouses or to their partners. Now, what's interesting in those situations is when somebody enters into your relationship, whether it is formalized as a marriage or live-in relationship, there is an implicit or an explicit commitment they are making till death do us part kind of a thing. And also, there are consequences of getting caught, which means there could be emotional damage, there could be reputational damage, there could be financial damage, there could be so many downsides. In spite of making these commitments and in spite of knowing the consequences, vast majority of people are not loyal. Now, if that's how people are, are we smart as companies, as businesses, as marketers to throw a few dollars or a few cashback points or miles or rewards and expect consumers to be loyal to us? 
right? It, it's absolutely ridiculous for us to expect people to lie like to us. And I look everywhere. If I look at in my case, I have got frequent flyer memberships with uh, American Airlines, with United Airways, with the Delta, with even Emirates Airlines. I have got with Costco, with Sam's Club, and uh, Amazon Prime and Kroger. And I got Hyatt and Holiday Inn, Marriott Bonvoy. So each category, I have multiple loyalty program memberships. Am I really being loyal to any of these guys or any of these brands? No. Then why are they kidding themselves that they're running these programs and getting effectiveness? Actually, loyalty, the way it is run today, is nothing but a pricing equation. Nothing more than that. So you need to reinvent. As companies, we need stickiness. There is no question we need stickiness of our customers, but don't misunderstand it for loyalty because when you look at it as stickiness, your approach completely changes and some of the frameworks I gave in the book exactly to tackle. And I say that loyalty, the way we know it is dead, literally don't kid yourself. You need to have preference management programs to ensure stickiness. These are platforms that you have to create and influence the consumer's choice at every point where the consumer is making a decision for the decision to go in favor of your brand versus somebody else's brand. So that is the gist of that chapter. I agree with everything you said. With one small perspective, which is, let's take United as an example. It may be because I have close to 2 million miles with them and I'm global services. But at the very high end, they do create good loyalty at the very, very high end. Do you think that's true for many brands beyond just like United? Like this is 0.2% or 0.3% of their of their total customer base. Let's take it to your next level, like what you have said, right? So I have got 1K on the United. I've got Delta 360. I have Concierge Key and American Airlines. Yeah. I use all the three of them. It's a matter of convenience. Who is giving you a better service? Who is giving you a better product? Who is giving you a better timing of the product? Who gives me the best vegan food? Because that's yes. what I... These should not be mistaken for loyalty. These are benefits that they are giving. So it's more a product manifestation as opposed to loyalty creation. That's a great way to put it. I'm going to uh, ask you one question before we go into rapid fire. Who has inspired you the most on your journey? From a professional point of view, I looked up to a number of people. It's not one single individual. There have been, like folks, when I think in terms of product creation, Steve Jobs is always an inspiration in absolutely. And when you are looking at something like service, Four Seasons and Red Carlton used to be at one point in time, I would say these are the gold standards, so to speak, in those areas. When you look at data analytics, I always used to look up to Amazon.com and then say, these guys, they know how to use data, where they're not only using data for themselves, but they're using data to give it back to you. You make more decisions in their favor. Like people who bought this or have also bought it, they were the guys who came up first with at least in my perception. But if you look at it more from a value system perspective and what I tried to bring to my job, I think the biggest influence was my mother. She introduced me to the concept of shopping. I used to be her you know, bag carrier when both of us would go shopping and I would see her how she would bargain, how she would decide on the choice. And I would say, I want to buy this. She would tell me, no, that's not good. You should buy this and why, etc. That had a very significant impact from then on. Plus also the aspects like gender balance. She was very, very, very well ahead of her time. Even before gender balance and gender parity were terms, she used to be very fiercely in support of women. And she used to instill those values in us. She would always say the way you have to actually succeed in life is by working your tail off, work very hard, but do it very honestly, etc. So the way I work, it's completely thanks to my mother. 
Wow, that's awesome. By the way, a kid carrying shopping bags for their mother is a classic born and brought up in India kind of thing, right? It's like whether you're going to the sabzi market or you're going shopping, that is what the kids did. All right, I'm going to ask you a few questions and I want you to say the first word or phrase that comes to mind. Okay. Ready? Yep. What book or movie has changed your life? Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. What's the most memorable marketing campaign you've been part of? Celebrate with Asian Paints. What's the most memorable marketing campaign that you've not been part of? Just do it. That's awesome. What motivates you to get out of bed every morning? Joy. What's your favorite thing to do in your free time? Reading. What kind of books are you reading right now? On metaverse, on this and blockchains and all the Web3 related stuff. Wow. <laughs> That's great. One word or phrase that best describes great marketeers? Sustainable differentiation. Raja, this has been awesome, like phenomenal. I, I feel like I could go on and talk about Web3 and talk about crypto. We have to figure out a way sometime over the next couple of years to have you come back and let's do a part two on this. I had a blast. I hope you did too. Thank you. Absolutely, I did. And thank you very much for the opportunity, Chet. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Execution Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. We have many more phenomenal guests and inspiring stories to come. So be sure to join us next time.